So you keep yourself afloat and you wait for those times when somebody will start to come to me and say, I don't want to write bad software badly. I want to write good software well. Can you help me build an organization that can do that? And I'll say, no, but I can help you build a community that will. That's kind of my take. And I, you know, I would urge everybody out there who has any connection to, to geek joy, to community, you know, to these ideas, to just, you know, take deep breaths, find sips of cool water when you get the chance, and hang in there. Hello, and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. I'm your host, Tim Bourguignon. On this episode 215, I receive Michael G. Powell Hill. Jipa was lucky enough to become a professional computer programmer around the middle of the 80s. He became an avid early adopter of a programming method called extreme programming. He has been an independent for most of his career as a developer, but also as a software development coach. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that today. He now works with software organizations all over, over the world, down on the floor and up in the penthouse, helping them find and implement solutions to the vexing difficulties of shipping software value for a living. Michael, welcome to journey. Hi, Tim. It's nice to see you. Oh, should I say cheapo? Oh, I called you Michael. Nah, that's a faux pas, isn't it? People go back and forth. Michael, <laughs> cheapo. My oldest friends actually call me Hill to avoid the whole issue. <laughs> Can do that as well. But before we come to your story, I want to thank the terrific listeners who support the show every month. You are keeping the Dev Journey lights up. If you would like to join this fine crew and help me spend more time on finding phenomenal guests than editing audio tracks, please go to our website, devjourney.info, and click on the support me on Patreon button. Even the smallest contributions are giant steps toward a sustainable dev journey. Journey? Thank you. And now back to today's guest. But we were trying to, uh, chatting before the uh, before the recording, and I told you I I knew you as Michael Hill before, and then when you was introduced through a friend of ours as G Paul, and didn't make the connection at first. And now I have to juggle with the two. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> For the people who don't know, people call me G Paul. It's not like well now I look like a grandfather. I look like an angry old man, but. It, it, I became a grandfather at a very young age. I was just 31 years old. My wife is a little bit older than I am, and her kids were almost grown. And so I got my first grandkid when I was 31 years old. And I have to tell you that my friends and family thought that was the funniest thing they had ever heard of. And so they began to call me grandfather and old man and the patriarch and all of that instantly and forever and the grandkids actually grew up calling me g-paw and that's why i'm called g-paw nowadays it's it's not meant to indicate my seniority as much as it is my little old manness which i've had <laughs> since i was 30. <laughs> well i didn't know you at 31 so so i cannot yeah. really really tell but now it fits the pair the persona perfectly so g-paw Awesome to have you on the show. As you know, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looked like and then imagine how to shape their own future. So as is usual on the show, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your dev journey? Before I answer, shape your story. If you're out there listening to us, 
Shape your story. You're in control of your story. You get to tell it and you get to pick the events that you think are most important. And doing that is a really, really important part of being a great geek and a great person. So before I start, I just had to blurt <laughs> that out. My story started, okay, so I don't know how it is in your local market, but here in America, when you get involved with the boss's girlfriend, you get fired. <laughs> That's so my story, as a, <laughs> my story as a developer started because I got involved with the boss's girlfriend. I was, I, was selling, I was selling books over the phone, and I was pretty good at it. And uh, I was doing pretty well, and I got together with the boss's girlfriend. And we, uh, well, I got fired. And, and, I, and I moved in with her, and uh, we lived together in, in the state of Virginia, up near the D.C. area. And I needed a job. So I thought to keep selling things, and I saw ads for people to sell computers, microcomputers. And uh, this was in 1980. And I went, to, uh, I went to a couple of different places, and I, I, one guy gave me a book to read. It was the Howard W. Sam's uh, Introduction to Microprocessors book. It was a big loose-leaf book. It was really actually very cool. And he said, come back in a week and I'll ask you questions out of it and we'll decide. And I did. And the, the decision was yes. And so I became a computer salesman. This was in 1980. And the, the, you know, the first of the two sort of revolutions in our trade that have done us both a lot of good and a lot of damage were, were, was just getting started, right? Computers were starting to come out. New computers were coming out every six weeks. There was a consumer marketplace that was very real for the first time. So what I would do is I would go in and from nine in the morning until noon, I would make all my calls and get all my business taken care of. And then from noon until nine, I just played with the computer. I, I messed with it. I learned everything I could about it. I started to learn programming. I learned a little bit of basic, but then I discovered a, a programming language called Forth that someone had brought me. Back in those days, you know, your, your training, unless you went to college for this, which I did not, I'm a street geek, 100% true blue. I've never taken a formal course in, in computer science. And so your training and everything came from your community, came from your peers. It came from people, you know, this guy would travel through like once every, every month to sell us and deliver us new hardware and stuff like that. And oftentimes he would have like a little five and a quarter inch floppy drive and it would have something on it. And it had an implementation of the programming language Forth. And I fell in love with Forth, and I started using it really, really regularly. I, and I actually started with, a, with one of my customers. He and I started a Forth interest group up in the D.C. area. And uh, there weren't very many of us. There were maybe half a dozen, maybe 10 at the most. But uh, we had a lot of fun. And he asked me one day if, he, if I thought I could write a new Forth for a new computer, a computer that hadn't had an implementation before. Forth is a very simple language. There's about a half a dozen primitives that need to be implemented down in the machine language. And so I gulped and I said, sure. And, and then he said, well, you think you could do it in six weeks? And I gulped and I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I became a computer programmer. And that's what I've been doing for the last 40-odd years. But, but not in fourth anymore. No. Or are you? <laughs> no. 
Although it's really tragic because it, I happen to be a bona fide fourth expert. I've implemented, oh my God, 30, 40, 50 different fourths on different machines. I created a multitasking fourth, one of the first floating point fourths, a multi-threaded fourth. I did all that stuff. I'm a real fourth expert and nobody cares. <laughs> what was so cool about fourth? You, you said you had had a bit of, ba of basic or you had programmed a bit of basics. Basic yeah. Fourth is, is one of those languages where you, you can understand everything about it. Everything about it. I mean, fourth is written mostly in fourth, except for those half dozen primitives. The primitives are very, very simple and easy to understand. And so it's like you're living in this world where you know everything about it. And because of that, because you can write the, because you can extend the language very easily, you just get so much freedom. I think people who work in small talk and to some extent in Lisp also had the same experience. They were like, I, I, I see everything. I know everything that's going on inside this program. There are no secrets from me. And I think that's, that's a big part of what made it so so pleasing for me. Mm -hmm. I worked in fourth pretty much full time for about five, six years. Okay. Finally, I, I figured out how to implement a fourth using C. And this would have been 1985 or so. And at that time, increasingly, new computers almost always had a C compiler. So my old specialty of rolling fourths in a new, you know, in it for a new CPU kind of went away. Because all I had to do was get my source code onto the C compiler and boom, we were off and running. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot of C and then eventually with C front 1.0, right? I, I launched into C. Okay. Um, and that was that was you burying the uh, the fourth timeline yeah. and then moving on, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. Pretty much. And have you continued creating compilers and creating languages like this for a while? Or do you You know, I really haven't except that in my modern work, I do almost everything in Kotlin nowadays. I really like working in Kotlin. But people who watch me program notice how obsessive I am at creating you know, languages that are, are, are dedicated to describing domains and problems and solutions, much more so than just using, you know, I don't just use Java to solve the problem. I use Kotlin and, and a little bit of Java to express the problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm very obsessed with that uh, expression angle. And I think that comes from having grown up in a language that where, you know, you were in charge of the language, not just your application. And so, so yeah, I don't, I, I, sometimes I watch people who are doing, you know, cool stuff. My friend Chelsea Troy, she does a lot of thing about compilers and writing compilers, you know, TDD and compilers and developing them and writes it all up for the internet and everything. Boy, I, it's so tempting. But I already have like 700 projects stacked up <laughs> waiting for me to deal with them. So I've been resisting the temptation so far. When when you're even more jeep out than you already are. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say the word retirement because do we ever at some point retire as professional developers? I'm not sure. But what I do nowadays, what I'm trying to do is I want to make content. I want to shoot videos. I want to write articles. I want to, to uh, do stuff like that. 
I want to do it about a quarter of my time and I want it to be enough money to keep me afloat. And so that's my version of retirement. That's, that's kind of where I'm headed. We'll see if that actually works out or not. Finger crossed. <laughs> but let, let's let's roll back a little bit. We we were just leaving forth and and moving on toward towards C or C plus plus. Did you consider yourself a professional programmer at that point? Ready? Were you still doing sales on the side? When did that happen? Oh no, I became a professional programmer almost immediately after that first gig, because I I wrote that forth for him and then. You know, in those days, I, it's, I think it's hard for people nowadays to understand. Nowadays, you have basically three platforms, and all they ever do is update. You never see a new platform. But in, in 1980, you would see a, a new CPU or, or a new operating system in a completely different configuration, and you'd see that every six weeks, eight weeks. And so, you know, the, back then, to be a programmer, in the microcomputer world, you had to be able to build serial cables because every box was different. The standardization process had not even begun. And, and I know we're not fully standard even now, but it's a lot better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. and, and so in, in that environment, you know, there was tons and tons of work just getting existing code up and running on new boxes. And then, of course, I also... I didn't just implement the fourth. I also worked for this guy doing, you know, the actual application that he sold, which was a vertical market. It was a sort of a custom vertical market. Well, really, Microsoft Office, except tailored to the trucking industry, to the printing industry, the, the professional web role printing in, industry, and, and things like that. And that's what we did. Um, that guy, Chris, was my first mentor in the trade. And Of course, you know, I thought he was old. I, I, I don't anymore. He was about, I don't know, eight years older than me. Whew. I know, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, we just geeked out together. We just had a wonderful time. And, and he, you know, working with him brought me to my first sort of taste of geek joy, of what it's like to just play and to get paid for it to get paid for playing all the time. This is how you would describe geek joy, getting paid to play. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the playing. It isn't the getting paid. But of course, that's what's <laughs> special about being a computer programmer is you get paid very well. My, my friends and, and my wife, you know, both give me grief sometimes. I'll complain about what someone is offering me to do a piece of work. And I'll, you know, I'll be like, you know, I wouldn't get out of bed for that amount of money. And they just, they just shake their head. But I, you know how it is. I didn't do this. I didn't, I didn't set out to become a computer programmer so I could be rich. I set out to be a computer programmer because this was really fun. And it is not my fault that the culture you know, doesn't value nurses, teachers, social workers, the way it values computer geeks. And I, I think it's, it's regretful. I, I, I wish we did value those things as much, but, but yeah, you know, you get, you do get paid, you get, you do get paid for joy. This is, this is definitely a privilege. Yeah. 
I, I can I can relate to that. So how did you, oh, I mentioned in your, in your bio that, uh, that you were independent most of your professional career. Yeah. Uh, how did that enter your life? I mean, you, you were you were working with with this guy, Chris, was that right? yeah. Chris from the get-go. Did you consider yourself already an independent at that point? Or at that you... point, I was, I was a flat employee. Mm-hmm. But after about three years, oh, you know, gosh, life is so hard. Chris and I, you know, we, we got off on separate tracks. We didn't want to necessarily keep working with each other quite so much. I found uh, somebody offered me, you know, a, a short contracting gig. And it was super, super lucrative. And it was only about three months worth of work, but it probably would pay for that entire year. Wow, uh, okay. and, uh, and so that sort of gave me a little bit of cushion. And then I just bounced from contract to contract. I didn't, I wasn't always working and I wasn't always filthy rich, but, 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 you know, it worked, it worked out. Okay. And Mm -hmm. I was, I was able to sustain myself. I'm a, I'm a hippie and I, I have lived in collaborative community housing pretty much my entire life. And I still do now. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that communal living is better but it is different. And one of the aspects in which it is different is that money is, is far less important. Mm-hmm. It, it is mm-hmm. far less the center of our concerns. And, and, and it's not, you know, there's no free lunch. There are, other, there are other problems that you get from the fact that you live in a community rather than as some little cell in a great big beehive that nobody knows your name or cares anything about you. But, but one of the problems that goes away or lessens at any rate is money. You know, I own my house. I own my car. I live on 500 acres of rolling wooded foothills with about 60 other adults. And, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty rich. I mean, not in cash, Mm -hmm. but but in stability and calm and beauty, you know? Uh, And so that, that aspect of it kind of helped my career, I think. The mm-hmm. fact that I did not have to pursue money quite as desperately as, as so many people do. I, I, people ask me, what should I do if I want to go independent? I said, the first thing is sell your Tesla, okay? You know, get, get used to the fact that you don't, you don't really have to do all those things. People are telling you to do those things, and they're trying to sweet talk you into doing it, and you don't have to do it. You get to choose what you spend your money on. Mm-hmm. That that's a good a good thing. If, maybe to to backtrack a little bit, one of the hardest discussion you have with people who are trying to be independent or are independent is well, you have to be searching for your next gig all the time. But if you're if money is not the motivator, then this goes away. So what do you optimize for next when you in, in, invariably search for a next gig? What, what, what your algorithm? So you know, I mean, it hasn't been an endless glowing fountain of money. I certainly have experienced times when it was a little dry and I was a little tense, but you kind of just learn that it'll pass. And since, you know, even if I dip into a little bit of debt, (laughs) it's okay. I'm going to come out the other side because I don't spend all that much money. And Mm -hmm. sooner or later I will get money. So then what do I optimize for? The kind of work that I like to do the community that I, I like to work with and, and things like that become of, of much greater concern to me. I'm far more willing to say no than, than I ever thought I would be. You know, I, at my level in the trade, I am 
often offered gigs at organizations that I would not choose to work for. And I tell them no. Unless, of course, I'm very desperate. But I'm not usually very desperate anymore. <laughs> I'm usually willing to say, yeah, you know, I don't think y'all are doing the right thing and I don't want to work for you. That's a very nice place to be at. Yeah. yeah. At what point did you consider this this particular role of a coach, of not being the one writing all the code, yeah. but being the one writing it and helping others do it? Well, so I obviously, I mean, maybe it's not obvious to your, to your listeners, but so I've been a coach as well for about 20 years. And I tend to alternate between coding and coaching and teaching, or I have over these last 40 years, I've done, done them all. I'm now probably known more as a coach than as anything else. But, you know, what happens is when you're in a team and you're, and you're plugging away and you've got your deadlines and you're all hooked up, the thing that you lose sight of most easily is the health of the team. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, I don't care whether you ship on time. I, I don't care about your deadline. I really don't. I could give a shit. I am only thinking about, and I'm, the, I'm usually the only person in the room thinking about this. How you guys doing? How do you feel? How's it going? And I don't mean how's it going in terms of your metric or your story points. I mean, how's it going in terms of your, you know, of your joy? How's it going in terms of your, are you reaching, are you becoming who you wish you were? And because I'm concerned about that, and, and like I say, because I'm usually the only person in the room who's actually focused on that, I can help teams become much more what they wish they were. And often as not, I know this sounds like a hard sell. It's not really. Because very often, the, the biggest things that are holding teams back are, are the fact that they're not having fun that they're not enjoying themselves, that they're not getting challenged or that they're getting overwhelmed by challenges. And, you know, people recognize that. We have so, you know, we have more data that proves that happy people are more productive than we do that proves that the, you know, earth revolves around the sun. I'm, I'm not kidding you. We have so much data about, <laughs> about how important the, the morale and energy and flow and feel of the team is to that team's ability to produce. And you brought up an earlier story before we got on about your conversation with JB where he got all offended because you called him an agile coach. Yes, I did. <laughs> I, al I also don't use that word. I am not an agile coach. I'm a software development coach. Yes, I am steeped in a lot of the principles and ideas, but the agile movement has gone in a in a in a really bad direction. It was not the direction we intended. And I don't, I don't install agile systems. I don't advocate for safe or scrum or even my beloved XP. And the reason is, is just to, to circle back. The reason is because that's not what's holding people back. Well, what's holding these teams back from producing is not the method. The method If my team is healthy, the method isn't really that important. And if my team is unhealthy, the method won't help them. So it's not that important either. What's important is, is my team healthy? And, and uh, I'm a geek. So 
I am certainly, I'm not talking about unicorns farting rainbows. The world is not full of, of endless joy second by second. But there's a sort of a flow, a sub base on which we build ourselves as individuals and as teams. And if that base is missing, no technique on earth is going to save you. And mm -hmm. it does certainly involve a connection to technique because technique is one of the things that fills us most with joy. But no methods. I'm not a method guy. I'm not a method guy. Somebody, uh, somebody told me the other day that someone asked Jerry Weinberg what, what he was most proud of in all of his accomplishments over his career. And you know what he said? So I'm really proud that I never that I never created a software development method. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, with all due respect to Jerry Weinberg, I, I am not a huge, huge, you know, fan like so many folks are of Jerry. But I have to say that's pretty damn good. And I would like to, t I would like to make the same claim. I have never invented a software development method, nor do I intend to. And I believe you right away. <laughs> but 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 I'm a bit surprised by your comment about putting XP also in this category of the things that you wouldn't recommend. It's not so much that I wouldn't recommend taking some of the techniques. I am an avid test-driven developer because I believe it makes us more productive and more joyful at the same time. But there are aspects of, tef of, of, of XP that even the old guard has renounced, right? Like story points. Story points are ubiquitous in the world of Agile. The people who invented story points don't believe in them. We don't use them. Because it was a great idea on paper, and in practice, it became something else. And so that's a really good example of how even a movement that had much power and interest and excitement and can go wrong if you try to turn it too hard into a set of instructions for programming. The thing that people ask me about, because I was very active in the early XP area, right? In the, in the mm, mid to late 90s, the design patterns movement had created a huge, huge stir in the trade. And from that movement came a smaller community that became the extreme programming community. And we were mostly centered in comp object on Usenet or in Ward's Wiki, which is called the Portland Pattern Repository, or sometimes called C2.com. And that's where we all hung out, where we spent our time. And the thing about it is, to me, the central, astonishing, amazing thing about XP, all of the really coolest stuff was in the community and not in the technique. Hmm. It was in the fact that we built a community of people who had similar ideas and similar interests. And, and you know, oh my God, we had love and war. You know, it was, <laughs> it was a happening and controversial space. But it was all framed by this ferment of excitement about the possibility of, of doing something cool and new and interesting. And, and that is the thing that I want to create in the world. Not a new XP or, God forbid, any of these other methods, 
but a community of excitement and joy and interaction. So that's what makes me, that's what makes me say not even, I wouldn't even install XP in your shop. <laughs> I am not a, I am not a system installer. I'm a walk in, look around, ask people how it's going, get them to start talking and thinking about who it is they want to be. And then I have a, you know, I have a big tool belt full of little tools that I can hand you depending upon what it is you answer me when you say, when I say, what is it that you want to be? Mm -hmm. I, I want to make a cheesy parallel, but Please. bear with me for a second. Yeah. What I see is you're not willing to, to port XP or port any, any methodology on a new programming, uh, on, on a new OS, a new team, but recreating the compiler for that team and creating uh -huh. their version of it. That would be your stuff. Could be. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, every community is different. All high-performing systems have some things in common, but almost none of them are processes. Almost all of them are about stuff we hardly even have words for. Or we have words and the words have already been stolen. Like leadership. You know, real communities do have leaders, but they don't look like the leaders people mostly talk about. You ever work on a team that had a guy who was uh, everybody's trusted go-to mentor friend who was not in charge? No. Those are the best teams. I have no power at all except my ability to talk and to make you feel good and to give you little insights and tips that help you. I'm not in charge of you. I don't get to tell you what to do. There's this idea that that, you know, Oh gosh. This is all this is all headed down this path of me eventually starting to talk about how broken and messed up our trade is. But there's this idea that you take the smartest person in the room and you put them in charge and you're going to get better results. That's not a very good idea. Because the smartest person in the room is not necessarily the best community builder in the room. Mm -hmm. And because in addition, the smartest person in the room is not in any way, stretch, or form guaranteed to be right. And when you, when you take those two assumptions and you say, what if those two assumptions aren't true? Then you get a very different model of how we ought to be making our teams, you know, and how we ought to be, in fact, approaching our software. Unfortunately, we can't. I mentioned the first of the two revolutions that happened in 1980. The second one happened in 2000. The first one was the, a dramatic drop in the, in the cost of physical computing. And just absolutely staggering. And it went on for 20 years to an extraordinary, extraordinary degree. Most people don't realize your Fitbit's got more computing power in it than the computer that, that circled the moon. People don't think about that anymore. You know, they just take it for granted. The second revolution started in about 2000 or so, and it was... The, another cost reduction, the extraordinary cost reduction in the cost of distribution. It became possible for us to, to send software anywhere, anytime, essentially for pennies. And the result of those has been this extraordinary, massive, massive demand for our services. Mm -hmm. So the great thing about that is, you know, I, I have a living and so do you. 
<laughs> right? That's, that's nice. nice. <laughs> that's pretty nice. <laughs> I'm really glad I'm not, you know, living in a basement apartment trying to paint code. Interest patrons in funding me to do so. So that's a good thing. But the downside to that is that it has, well, in 1980, when I came into the trade, there were 100,000 professional developers. Today, there are about 26 million. That's just 40 years from 100,000 to 26 million. The average, the average developer has less than five years of experience in the trade. Over half have less than mm-hmm. five years of experience. That's a stunning fact. You know, I don't know if the last time you hired a plumber, but I'll tell you what, I, I guarantee you that plumber had more than five years of experience in the trade. <laughs> Guaranteed, yes. I am yeah. nodding heavily. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you cannot see it, but yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that, that makes you a senior in terms yeah. at least of, of experience after five yeah. years. Yeah. And so what's happened is our culture has become brittle. It's very fragile. It's, it's all the badging you see. Ba- we badge people around. Do they know our favorite language or our favorite language trick or our clever Google algorithm or blah, blah, blah. We badge them around their gender presentation. We, we badge them around their, their nationality or their race. We badge constantly. All of that is the reaction of a very fearful and brittle culture. That culture is fearful and brittle because the people who are supposed to be in charge have no idea how to do this. And they transmit that downward. And we built these huge structures where, in theory, my software development group, or if I'm a whole company of software developers, my company, is a machine with motive force up at the top and leadership up at the top. And and there's little rods connecting us in this vast mechanical organization. And what it is, is it's a recipe for creating bad software badly. And the only reason we get away with it is that in this demand market, in this still incredibly high demand market, it is possible to be very profitable writing bad software badly. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's going to come to an end. I want it to come to an end. (laughs) I want us to, to move towards writing good software well. But... We're on the cusp. Maybe, maybe that's going to happen in the next 10 years. I, I, I don't really know. But, but anyway, all this has done is malformed our trade into an icky, icky thing. And one of the things that I try to spend my time doing is getting us back to, when people say back to basics, and they think I mean back to like, I don't know, XP or something like that. No, I mean back to basics. Team, community, mutuality of interest and activity away from machines, away from titles, away from order giving. The thing that worries me the most about this trade today is that we have 26 million developers in the world, and I don't know, probably 22 million of them hate their jobs. That's too bad, man. I spent 40 years in this job. I love it. It Made me who I am today. And the idea that 22 million of them are out there unhappy... That's, that can't be right. That can't be working. That's depressing, to say to the least. <laughs> but can you, can you be happy developing banking software and, and insurance software? 
Can anybody be, be happy with that? It depends. I have certainly worked in finance and in banking and had a fine time. Because I don't think it is necessarily the subject matter. On the other hand, it's hard to get up in the morning and realize that your job is putting more advertising on more web screens. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it puts the database on its browser skin or else it gets the hose again. That's, you know, that's pretty much, that's a lot of what these folks do for a living and it sucks. And, you know, a big part of my mantra is, you know, it doesn't have to suck. You could get better at that. But we never get better at it because it is still possible to make money by writing bad software badly. That software is bad and it is written poorly. If we if we weren't able to make money doing it, we would be able to learn how to write it well, how to mm-hmm. do it so that even putting ads next to database information on a web browser would be a more joyful task than it is now. I think that's possible. Maybe not the end of, you know, not as cool and sexy as some of the work we've done over the years, but still viable for people who, you know, who are okay with that activity. Mm-hmm. So does it have to, to go through some kind of, of bigger difficulty selling it afterwards? Or can we have a healthy dose of, of Daniel Pink drive, autonomy, master, and purpose? The purpose is, is maybe not as high in one case compared to the other, but autonomy and mastery then? And then that's sufficient to make people joyful and, and start being interested in their, in their craft again. And, and right. So I took Pink's uh, ideas and I extended them a little bit. I added rhythm and safety Ooh. and it's called ramps, rhythm, autonomy, mastery, purpose, and safety. And the point that I actually realized after I had forged into it a, a little bit was that, you know, these are, so if you take on you burn a metal, It, 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 it puts out visible light and the visible light is of a certain spectrum. And if you take that spectrogram, you can actually identify the metal. And so think of a spectrogram as these colored line, vertical lines that a unique pattern is associated with each ore or substance that, that you're burning. Mm-hmm. So think of R, A, M, P, and S as four lines. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now you get a better, you get a much better sense of what a human character is like. Some of us are driven much more by whether or not our work has purpose. Others are driven much more by whether or not our, our work has rhythm to it, has regular doses of dopamine associated with how we do it. And the, uh, once you begin to realize that, you begin to realize, you know, there are people who will be pretty happy putting webs on, ads on web screens Assuming the work doesn't suck in its ordinary trivial sense, they're, they're, they don't need the purpose. They don't need the mastery. They like the rhythm. They like the safety. They like the autonomy that they could be getting out of that. Those people will be happy in that, in that area. Others need the, really, the mastery thing is so important to a lot of people. And having some obscure domain, you know, working in some domain that nobody understands. High-speed trading on Wall Street. Or, I don't know, facial recognition or any of these other stunningly interesting, intriguing problems that we see. You know, those people are probably going to be more interested in that. Mm-hmm. That combines mastery and purpose for them. But we don't all have the same shape. We don't all put 
out the same spectrogram. So I think it is possible that that we can find places for people to fit. Right now, all of the levels of support for all of those bars are so low for so many people. You can't even tell the differences between them. In fact, the trade is almost built on the idea that there aren't any differences between them. That humans are what we call resources, mm-hmm. like coal. How much coal do you use? How many human resources will it take for us to do this project? Something with a comma. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because you can cut people in half, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the idea of the fungible human, the interchangeable humans who all of us have the same spectrogram and the same needs, the same that's nonsense. That's Mm -hmm. just nonsense. Mm -hmm. And it's nonsense on its surface. Everyone knows this about themselves. Everyone does. But now we're going to build a system and a theory, a, a, a mechanical, you know, mechanical scheme for creating software based on the assumption that we're the same. No, I don't think so. But the, the, there's there's one more fallacy, which is not not just basing it on the assumption that people are the same, but basing it on the assumption that even if people were different, it wouldn't matter on the output on the outcome. Because it doesn't matter as long as they press the right key at the right time. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that comes back to 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 joy and, and teamwork, etc. Being actually the uh, the only measure of success that you can have. If joy is there, then you will be success. If joy isn't there, then you cannot guarantee it. Yeah. Or even, no, I mean, you could you couldn't guarantee it if you had joy either. But another thing I've heard in in uh, in this autonomy mastery and purpose, I've heard the, the the word belonging being put as a fourth one. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I, I like it. I would suggest that belonging has a lot to do with safety. Okay. I think belonging might be a kind of split, maybe a little between safety and purpose. Because mm-hmm. so often we say we belong because we share a purpose. I see. I see. You know, we share, you know, we find ourselves both in service to a larger thing we both believe in. But I, I think that there are probably more than just those three and more than just my two additions and more than, right? Because we're talking about human nature here. I don't know if you ever read about this guy. Uh, I'm not going to be able to remember his name. He was a researcher in uh, for the Air Force. And what he did was he tried to measure the average pilot in an effort to design the perfect cockpit mm-hmm. for the average pilot. And he measured like 30,000 of them. And he measured about 100 different measurements, physical measurements of their bodies. And so he computed then from all these measurements, the average airman. And he found that not one of his airmen was the average airman. So then he said, okay, forget about, forget about all 100 attributes. Let's take arbitrary sets of five, and he chose random sets of five of the attributes, and he repeated the same process. And what he did, what he came up with was about 2% of his airmen were somewhere in that space on the five most common attributes that he finally was able to choose. And the point of all this is simply to say that in even in even in a situation that is 
rigorously filtered. It's hard to be a pilot. That's not an easy thing to do to be a pilot in the Air Force. They're rigorously filtered for their health, for their reflexes, for their eyesight, for this and that and the other, and for their brains. There's no such thing as an average person. So there's no such thing as an average geek either. We're all different, and we all have lots and lots of little weird spikes all over us that point in different directions. You know? And thanks for that. Thanks, God, for that. It would be so annoying if we were all like that. That's that's usually the place where where I ask you for one advice. But it's been advice after advice, and you gave me a hint before. I would like to 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 go back to this instead. You said that's my words, not not yours, but that that's my reformulation. You said are you hoping that we can turn this industry around in the next ten years? And and really really improve on the state and that 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 it is in. What do you think is going to be key for that? I think the key is going to be it's going to have to become not profitable to write software badly. I I, I really do. I don't think that I don't think that an act of will can reshape the trade. I think a collapse is going to have to reshape the trade. I don't think that collapse has to be a disaster. As long as there are those of us standing around waiting, <laughs> waiting for the chance <laughs> to, to reassert, you know, the connection to the, to the joy and to the community and to reassert the value of, you know, it's not so much that I want to throw out technique. Technique is important, but to realign it with with the larger picture in a much better fashion. And as long as we're still hanging in and still believing, I think our opportunity will come. I don't think that, that I don't think we can force it. I get little bubbles of it here and there. You know, I, I've certainly had it from time to time and place to place in, in my career. That's why I'm still in it. And I think people who are like me can keep looking and find those spots. But I will say that in this trade, the way it's currently structured, those spots are usually temporary. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are short-term situations in which you're there and it's going and you're having a great time and you're also producing and effective and blah, blah, blah. And then they break you up. It's, it's so common, you know, it is unfortunately. Yeah. So you keep yourself afloat and you wait for those times when somebody will start to come to me and say, I don't want to write, bad software badly. I want to write good software well. Can you help me build an organization that can do that? And I'll say no, but I can help you build a community that will. Hmm. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of my take. And I, you know, I would urge everybody out there who has any connection to, to geek joy, to community, you know, to these ideas to just, you know, take deep breaths Find sips of cool water when you get the chance and hang in there. This is, this is not sustainable. I know it's been a long time. It's been 40 years. But it, it is not sustainable for us to keep running our trade this way. It has to collapse. I think we see signs of it already. I talk with executives. They say, you know, their software development department is like an infinite capacity flush toilet down which they, they flush their, their operating capital every year and they never get anything back. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the least you can say, ouch. Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to piggyback on your optimism. I really hope it's going to turn this way. <laughs> I've got a few scenarios in my mind, but I'm going to leave it optimistic for now. Thank you very much, Ibo. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. I quite enjoyed myself. Thanks for having the great questions and the interactions. I Obviously, I got really excited. I went on and on, didn't I? Oh, well. That is fantastic. That, that's the way it should be. When you're uh, in your head talking and telling us your story, which has covered a few years and you have plenty to say. So awesome. Thank you very, very much. Jibo, where would be the best place to, to, to start a discussion with you or continue this discussion with you? Okay. So, you know, it's G-Paw, G-E-E-P-A-W, Hill, H-I-L-L. And that's it kind of everywhere. It's gpawhill.org. That's my website. You can find me on Twitter as gpawhill. You can find me on Mastodon. Social.mastodon is where I'm registered nowadays at, at gpawhill. It's, it's a good name in that respect because it's not very taken. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to use it almost everywhere I go. Uh, you can always drop me an email. You can tweet me. You can, you can reach out in any number of ways. I'm always happy to talk about these things. They are very important to me, obviously. So feel free. Could hear this in your voice throughout the whole exchange. You looked happy and you, you sounded happy as well. Thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. I had a great time. And this has been another episode of The Post Journey. And we see each other next week. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please share, rate, and review. It helps more listeners discover those stories. You can find the links to all the platforms the show appears on on our website, devjourney.info slash subscribe. Creating the show every week takes a lot of time, energy, and of course money. Would you please help me continue bringing out those inspiring stories every week by pledging a small monthly donation? You'll find our Patreon link at devjourney.info slash donate. And finally, don't hesitate to reach out and tell me how this week's story is shaping your future. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Timothep, T-I-M-O-T-H-E-P, or per email, info at devjourney.info. Talk to you soon.